Welcome to the What's What Weekly Wrap-Up, a podcast dedicated to features exclusively from the WFUV newsroom. I'm David Escobar. And I'm Maya Sargent. Every Monday, we give you the FUV Sports Spotlight. It's where we feature stories from one-on-one, New York's longest-running call-in sports show. This interview is with NBC's Bob Costas from a special edition of One-on-One, celebrating Vin Scully, the founder of WFUV and a Fordham alum. Ryan Gregware and Michael Calamari talked with Costas on the legacy of Vin Scully as a broadcaster for 67 years in baseball. In this excerpt, Bob tells a special story illustrating the impact of Scully on everyone he met. To check out the entire interview, visit WFUV Sports on YouTube and be sure to tune in to more of One on One, Saturdays from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. on YouTube and 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. on 90.7 FM. Bob, this is Ryan. Thank you so much for taking some time with us to talk about the impact of Vince Scully. Hey, guys. How are you? Now, being on WFUV and talking about the Fordham legacy, understand you're talking to a Syracuse guy, but the <laughs> one school that can rival Syracuse, maybe not in volume. we got a very, very long list. But when you got Vin Scully at the top of your list and you got Mike Green and others, you're right there, Michael Kay. Uh, you're right there. Bob, do you have a favorite story about Vin Scully? And if not a favorite, maybe one that just resonates with you? Well, this one resonates with me because I was involved in a small way personally. Some 30 years ago, I was interviewing the great musician Ray Charles for a magazine piece on NBC. And at the end of this interview... Ray says to me, you know who I'd really like to meet? And I'm thinking, you're Ray Charles. You're a genius in your own right. You're acclaimed everywhere. You've been everywhere, done everything. You can meet anybody you want. Who could it possibly be? Who is it, Ray? Who do you want to meet? He said, I would love to meet Vin Scully. He said, Bob, you have to understand. To me, the picture means nothing. Because Ray Charles, of course, was blind. To me, the sound is everything. And these are his words exactly. He said, Vin's broadcasts are almost musical. Could you introduce me to Vin Scully? I said, well, yeah, I'm sure I could arrange that. So eventually, uh, we got Ray to Dodger Stadium. I called Vin and explained the situation to him. And Vin, as usual, was wonderful and gracious. And here's Ray Charles, as acclaimed at what he did, as Vin Scully was at what he did, But when Vin walked into the room, almost on cue, and said, Hello, Ray. My name is Vin Scully. What a pleasure to meet you. Ray Charles lit up like a little kid. He almost trembled with delight. And Vin was very appreciative of Ray's accomplishments. But you could tell that it was not an equal exchange. (laughs) Ray was more thrilled to be around Vin. Vin was, of course, respectful and appreciative. It's Ray Charles, after all. But Ray was like a kid in a candy store. That was WFUV's Mike Calamari and Ryan Gregoire talking to Bob Costas about Vin Scully. Every month, WFUV brings you Cityscape. New York City is home to many great food markets, from Smorgasburg to Chelsea Market to the Union Square Green Market. New Yorkers are no strangers to good food. WFUV's Isabel Danzis had the opportunity to visit the Queens Night Market to see what it had to offer for just $6. On Saturdays from 5 p.m. to midnight, smells of many different types of cuisines waft out of Flushing Meadows Corona Park. That park is home to the Queens Night Market. The night market hosts food vendors selling food from all around the world. 
artists selling artwork like paintings and jewelry, and a performer to entertain people as they shop around. Since we launched in 2015, uh, we've represented something like 95 countries through our vendors and their food so far. So that's, you know, the affordability and the diversity are sort of two key features and priorities uh, in running this thing. That was John Wang, the founder of the market. Wang was inspired to create the night market after spending time in Taiwan during his summers as a kid and attending food markets there. When I travel, I prefer to go to the local markets as much as possible. And one thing that occurs to me often when sort of traveling is that these things for tourists and for American tourists, they're super, super affordable and you can sort of buy anything you wanted for you know, virtually nothing in terms of US dollars. Um, and so that was always a, a, a benefit of being a tourist in sort of other countries. So I thought uh, it would be great if New York City had a night market, but one that also sort of replicated the as far insofar as possible, the affordability that I sort of grew to love in local markets. The Queen's Night Market has a price cap on its food, making it affordable for many people. Vendors at the Night Market cannot sell their food for more than 5 or $6. And according to Robert Lee, the owner of Tada Noodles, a restaurant present at the Night Market, for many people, that price cap allows them to try lots of different cuisines. The Queen's Night Market also has a very deliberate sense of like having a, a different, uh, diverse group of food, you know, uh, types. Uh, so it really gives you the, you know, the chance to have like, you know, Brazilian, you know, meatballs to, you know, Tata noodles, you know, all across the world, different cuisines. So it's a really fun environment. Tata noodles sells the traditional Korean dish jajamian which is a sweet and savory black bean sauce made with onions served over noodles. According to Lee, not many people outside of the Korean community know about it. So Tata noodles is actually a play on words or a literal kind of ex uh, translation from the Korean jajangmyeon. And in Korean, jajang is tada. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to basically have a uh, you know, delightful moment of you know, presenting jajangmyeon to kind of you know, just Western Queens in general mm -hmm. uh, and really to the world. Besides just food, there are also stands of artists selling their work. Queen's Night Market is a beautiful place where people come and they, you know, they have fun. They, they, it's a very tasty food there. Angelica Maria Ramirez sells her jewelry at her stand and store called Hoyeria Angelica Maria. Maria Ramirez started coming to the night market because of her sister. And it eventually led to her having her own store. And this is how I started. Yeah, I was not even, I had no plan to do it, but yeah. Queen's Night Market, it, it was for me like the big opportunity for me to, you know, now to open my new store. I have a store now, um, yeah, with jewelry, handmade jewelry. For many, the night market provides an opportunity for people to come together and bond over food. You know, my favorite stories from vendors are ones where they're not in it to make money at all. They're in it to spend time with their families. And if you go to the night market, you'll see these tents where, you know, entire extended families under this 10 by 10 tent and they're enjoying it. And they're sort of enjoying the process of cooking together and selling together and sort of treating it as real quality family time. The Queen's Night Market stands out against other outdoor markets because of its commitment to diversity in cuisine and affordability. The night market is returning to Flushing Meadow Corona Park after its temporary pause for the U.S. Open Tennis Championship. That was WFUV's Isabel Danzes talking about the Queen's Night Market, which returns on September 17th. Cityscape aims to show off the people, places, and vibes of New York City. If you've tuned into the show in the past few weeks, you've probably heard us talk about the recent influx of migrants being bused to New York from the southern border. 
This week, I spoke with two Fordham students working with the Kino Border Project to learn more about what's happening now with these asylum seekers. New York is known for having one of the most storied immigration institutions, Ellis Island. But over the past few months, New York has been receiving migrants at an unusual venue, Port Authority Bus Terminal. And New York isn't alone. Other northeastern cities, including Washington, D.C., have seen an influx of asylum seekers traveling by bus from Texas and Arizona. Texas alone has sent nearly 9,000 migrants on buses to the northeast in the past few months, according to CNN. And the conditions on those buses have sparked criticism. They need to be treated with humanity. Everyone is alarmed by what is happening. Uh, And of course, they're asylum seekers. They deserve to be here. One of Texas Governor Greg Abbott's biggest critics is Manuel Castro. He's New York City's Commissioner for Immigrant Affairs. What Governor Abbott is doing is wrong. He's using these people as political pawns to make uh, political statements. And again, these are families, these are people. That's where resources like the Kino Border Initiative come into play. They're a nonprofit organization set up at the border to help migrants. It's also where Fordham alum Maddie Hilf spent the last month assisting migrants in Nogales, Arizona, before they continued their journey. She says many of these people are still facing a Trump-era legal hurdle called Title 42. It prevents people from getting asylum, basically, for all the reasons that they were able to before that policy went into place. Um, the reason cited is COVID, which I think is um, kind of ridiculous because there are no COVID rules anywhere in the U.S. So to say that people can't enter because of COVID concerns just seems like covering up for xenophobia to me. We had to explain to many people coming who are hoping to get asylum in the U.S. that that policy is in place um, because a lot of people actually don't know about it. And even if migrants can overcome all the obstacles they face getting into the U.S., there is still the biggest hurdle of them all, claiming asylum. Many of the people Afra Bundagi spoke with at the Kino Border Initiative didn't know the first thing about the U.S.'s extensive process. We saw like other issues due to U.S. policy and also Mexican policy. Mexico does not care about the migrants who are coming. There were a lot of people who just, a lot of migrants who would come and would have no clue about really what asylum was, if they qualified for it, because asylum is also very like rigorous. You have to actually meet a bunch of criteria and it's really hard to prove that you deserve or you need asylum. And that burden of proof is glaring when you look at the numbers. According to a study from Syracuse University, immigration judges denied nearly three out of every four cases brought to them in 2020. President Biden has pledged to end the Trump administration's strict border policies, But until those changes come, Hill says there's a lot of work that's got to be done to help people crossing the border. I think a big thing is dignity, just like what promotes their dignity as a human person. Like when we gave out clothes, we we were trained on these like specific pillars that they had as values when giving out clothing. So so using your own judgment, but also letting them like promote themselves and um, ask for what they need. So food, clothing, just to promote their dignity. But immigration advocates say helping migrants can't just stop at the border. If we keep seeing people bust from the border to northeastern cities, Bundagi says places like New York will need to step up. And then in cities, um, I definitely think there could be like centers set, set up where they could have like ESL classes or even what Kino does, like legal help, psychological help, social workers. Um, you know, Kino helps people find jobs as well. 
But Bundagi and Hilf both admit that getting policies to change is going to require a big shift in the attitudes of the people in power. I would say you need to go to the border and actually meet migrants, talk to them. I don't think it's that politicians don't know what's happening. I think it's that they don't care. Along those same lines, I was going to say to them, just open your eyes. Because like you just said, Afra, like the information is out there. It's not hidden. The violence that's occurring at our borders, um, the apathy that border patrol agents, detention guards, et cetera, et cetera, have. Politicians have that same apathy. Um, so I would just say open your eyes and like look at the humanity of the situation. It's going to take a lot of change to get migrants the help they need. But right now, one thing's for certain. There's a crisis at our southern border. That was my co-host David Escobar's exploration into the Kino Border Project. Mobster movies are a staple of New York City film culture. And this month, we've been airing excerpts from an interview with the creative mind behind one of New York's most beloved monster movies. WFUV's Madison Colombo sat down with actor and writer Charles Palmenteri to talk about the legacy of A Bronx Tale and his new one-man show. Picture an iconic mobster movie. Street-smart criminals, some morally gray actions, and usually an appearance from Robert De Niro. Another thing most of them have in common? New York City. From The Godfather to Goodfellas, the city has been the cultural hub of the mobster genre. And one of those iconic films took place just a short walk away from the FUV studio. And I learned the greatest gift of all. The saddest thing in life is wasted talent. And the choices that you make will shape your life forever. But you can ask anybody from my neighborhood and they'll just tell you, this is just another Bronx tale. Premiering in 1993, a Bronx tale pays homage to Bronx life in the 60s, touching on themes of racism and, of course, wasted talent, telling the story of a young boy stuck between the alluring life of mobsters and the morality of being a hardworking man. A Bronx Tale quickly gained recognition as one of the greatest New York mobster films. You gotta do what your heart tells you to do. Let me tell you something right now. You only allowed three great women in your lifetime. They come along like the great fighters once every ten years. Rocky Marciano, Sugar Ray Robinson, Joe Lewis. Sometimes you get them all at once. Me? I had my three when I was 16. That happens. What do you want to do? That's Chaz Palminteri, who wrote and starred in the film that's partially based on his own Bronx childhood. I got to sit down with Palminteri to talk about the powerful film and his return to New York City in the one-man stage version of the story. What do you want your play's legacy to be in the future? I know you talked about how you want it to last and how you think it will. Mm. What do you want the legacy of that show to be? And what do you want when people who watch it kind of to take with them into the real world? Well, I, I think, again, what I said before about wasted talent, about mm -hmm. so many people, if you think about it, waste their talent. So many people play the victim in this world. So many people just don't realize. You know, there was a great uh, speaker, Les Brown. He was a really great motivator. And he said, you know, I always remember that. I, Denzel Washington said it, too, from Les Brown. I don't want to take credit for somebody else's words, but he, he wrote this and he said that at the end of your lifetime, when you're on your deadbed, you're going to have all these ghosts around you. And they're all the ideas that you could have done. And they're going to look at you and say, why didn't you, why didn't you do this? Now I have to die with you now. Look, you wasted all those years. And I keep getting that dream and it's terrible. So I keep saying, 
Any ideas I got, I got to write them down. I got to do as much as I can. And I hope the legacy will be that it teaches children that it's never too late to change your life. It's always your next move, as Napoleon Hill used to say. Just <laughs> change your life. You can hear the full interview with Chaz Palminteri and about the return of his one-man show to New York City at our website, wfuvnews.org. That was an excerpt of WFUV's Madison Colombo talking with actor and screenplay writer Chaz Palminteri about his story, A Bronx Tale. You can hear the full interview on our website, wfuvnews.org. And that's it from us. But you can check out the What's What weekly wrap-up every Friday for more features exclusively from the WFUV newsroom. Make sure to check out the WFUV What's What daily podcast. It explores current events, culture news, and hot topic issues surrounding the New York metropolitan area. Including features, interviews, and music news exclusively from FUV. You can catch new episodes every weekday at 3 p.m. Subscribe where you get your podcasts or find out more at WFUVnews.org. I'm Maya Sargent. And I'm David Escobar.